Sports Medicine Weekly is the sports enthusiast's resource for fitness, nutrition, injury prevention, and treatment. The Sports Medicine Weekly podcast is sponsored by JRF Ortho. JRF Ortho partners with orthopedic surgeons to improve the quality of life of patients by enabling them to have an active life through the generous gift of cartilage and ligament transplantation. Please go to jrfortho.org to learn more or sign up to be a tissue donor at donatelife.net. Rush Physical Therapy. The therapists at Rush Physical Therapy are here for you. With more than 60 locations throughout greater Chicagoland, Rush's clinical experts will get you back to life. Go to RushPT.com today to schedule an appointment. Not sure if physical therapy is right for you? Request a complimentary consultation and discover the power of Rush Physical Therapy today. Karen Malkin and Karen Malkin's new Protein Brownie Bar and Superfood Bars, the best-tasting bars on the market. Certified gluten-free, paleo, and no added sugar. Karen's Protein Brownie Bars and Superfood Bars, available on Amazon and at KarenMalkin.com. Our guest today on Sports Medicine Weekly is Dr. Lauren Loberg. Dr. Loberg is a performance psychology consultant with Pyramid Performance Consulting and brings an extensive background in elite sports that is both academic and experiential. Dr. Loberg's experiences as a UCLA student athlete, coach, researcher, mental health counselor, and sports psychology consultant have contributed to the development of her philosophy and its implementation. She's worked for the US Ski and Snowboard Association, the National Football League, developing programs to address the total wellness of each athlete. She's provided sports psychology consulting, mental health consulting, career and education planning, and personal development training that has assisted athletes in building towards transition to life after elite sports competition. During the winter of 2014, Dr. Loberg spent February in Sochi, Russia, supporting athletes on the U.S. Olympic team. 21 of the many athletes she worked with in sports psychology consulting were named to the U.S. Olympic team, and they brought home five of the 17 medals. Most recently, she attended Pyeongchang for the 2018 Olympics with three athletes who returned home with a total of three medals. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Lauren Loberg. As always, we have Dr. Brian Cole from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush on the podcast as well. So Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Glad so, to be here. I'd like to start by just um, having you explain to our audience a little bit more about what a performance psychology consultant is and what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah, so I think it's, um, as people reference most of our career as sports psychologists. Really what the, the difference of titles is a lot of it has to do with your educational background. Um, if you're a psychologist, uh, a licensed psychologist, you can call yourself a sports psychologist. Um, anyone else who's trained, like my um, PhD is actually through the exercise sports science field. And it is the study of performance and sport and performance. Um, and then I also am a licensed mental health counselor. So you really want to know what you're looking for or when you're talking to a professional. Is it, are you looking for performance only? Are you looking for someone with mental health background? Are you looking for someone who has been trained academically and has experience or just the experience? Now that we're broadening with um, different types of coaches and platforms you see out there, you want to really know what is their kind of educational background as well as their experience. 
Lauren, and I want to first clarify, you're okay if uh, I call you Lauren and you can call me Brian, okay? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> right, thank you. Um, so, you know, what's interesting is that I do work with sports psychologists, and um, uh, but rarely do they have the background that you do. And what is uh, interesting is many of them actually have the uh, a history of being an athlete like yourself. I know when you were younger, you were a, a competitive level gymnast, and then you went to UCLA as a, a, a D1 diver. Is that correct? You started diving yes. as an adult. Yep. So, Absolutely. so yeah, and I think that obviously that creates a foundation to as a, or a nidus to be able to really relate to your athletes. And um, the challenge is there's just not enough people like you. And I know you're very busy with what you do. So I first want to thank you for taking the time to do this podcast episode. And I've been looking forward to it um, very much. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, as an orthopedic surgeon, I'll tell you that ironically, when I was uh, early in my training, in medical school, I was interested in uh, things like sports psychology and, and psychiatry and so forth. I was a psychology major and never thought I'd go into surgery, quite quite frankly. And uh, these are the, the upside of it is, well, that was not clearly the best career for me. I will tell you that every single day in the office and what I deal with in the training room, um, we have issues like this. We've had players go out because of performance anxiety that we can never get back who have long-term contracts. They just can't seem to get over it. Medications, uh, psychotherapy, and other. Uh, and then we're dealing with the things that, uh, you, that we're all seeing in the news, which is sort of in many ways normalizing this, which is I think what often happens is that once people are comfortable speaking about it, more and more you start to hear about it. And I think one to set the table, it's... It's not um, all, all of these pro these situations are not the same. You know, Naomi Osaka was, you know, a very explicit problem with you know challenges and anxiety with the media, but she was lauded for being so vocal about it. And I think everyone came out and supported her, and rightly so, because she had the courage to express how challenging that was. Because you know, let's face it, athletes are not used to being weak or vulnerable, and it's a, a complete diametrically uh, diametric opposition to what they're doing every single day where they're celebrated for their 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 excellence and all of a sudden you're on the podium and you're seen as weak and and uh, the the great thing about the times that we have now is that as you as we continue to hear these different stories as i say things can kind of normalize but they're not all the same you know as i say naomi was anxiety uh the unfortunate recent uh suicide of uh, olivia podmore more likely than not that's that's you know someone who's competing at the highest level and you know, we're going to assume depression, but we don't know. Michael Phelps, depression. Serena Williams, postpartum depression. Lindsey Vaughn, depression. Uh, Daniel Carcillo is a retired uh, NHL player. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, mental health challenges. Uh, Zach Greinke, you know, uh, people you just wouldn't expect. So what you what we find is that there's no face of mental illness or performance anxiety or other there's not a it's the most heterogeneous thing that we deal with just like athletes are in general and i think it's important um for people to understand that we're not always dealing with the exact same problem this is not all mental health this is performance these are other things so um that's a long way of saying i'd be really interested in if you could just help us set the table as to the kinds of large stroke categories that we're seeing here because we don't want to lump it all together right yeah, absolutely. I think there's a. It's important to understand what, like what you said, the the spectrum of um, what you're looking at, and like I mentioned, the training people have. You know, um, you know, as you know, the clinical model is kind of what's wrong with you and how do we fix it. 
and um, and then there's you know the environmental model and the holistic model and all these different things. I think more people are looking at the broader spectrum. But we've got mental illness, um, which is you know you hear a lot of people say, oh, they have depression or anxiety, and sometimes that comes from the media. I don't know always is that something that has been diagnosed. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know. the media is used to making snap conclusions because the public wants information yesterday. Mm-hmm. So right. it's it, I always we always say it's sort of this linear reasoning. They mm-hmm. are always trying to get from point A to point B, and that's why the public has to be very leery about what they read because it's right. often incorrect. Simone Simone was probably a great example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's been you know we have coaches everything. People are self-diagnosing a lot more. I think you know. Um, they just Google it and say, I get people saying, oh, I have this, or I had someone come in and go, my coach says I'm bipolar. And I was like, I've worked with you for two years. I'm confident you're not bipolar. <laughs> um, he would have these, you know, kind of outrages at the bottom of the ski wheel. That was just, you know, how do we manage our anger if we didn't do well? That didn't mean he was bipolar. Right. Um, you know, so there's we kind of use these terms kind of a little bit too fluid and same with mental health. What is the definition of mental health? And everybody has their own definition. What's the definition of total wellness? Um, at one point I had a boss who said total wellness is a buzzword. And I was like, okay, so I need to tell you where my framework is coming from and what I look at. And, you know, you have to really educate people on all these different things. Um, you know, mindfulness is a new thing as it's not new. It's been around for ever. Um, so let's, l- let me ask you a question about, let's talk about some things that are sort of topical because mm-hmm. I think, uh, the public would, you know, maybe uh, given your expertise, maybe understand it. One of your, uh, areas of expertise is in, in performance, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, I will tell you that, the things that I see are either an athlete who is uninjured, who is uh, has just an incredible amount of performance anxiety, so much so that it's crippling and that they cannot play their sport. And I had not, in having the opportunity to take care of some professional teams over the last 17, 18 years, um, it is something that's actually been historically quite common in baseball. Baseball is a real heady game. Um, but I've seen it in virtually every professional sport that I've come into contact with. I think if I hadn't seen it, I just wasn't looking for it. Now I know and I can see it. Um, Simone uh, Biles was interesting because people just lumped it into just mental a mental uh, uh, wellness or you know health issue. And I listened to some of the interviews, and it 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 sounded as if it, as if she took herself out because she was uncomfortable with um, uh, her ability to perform and the safety of her sport. And I've seen that before, too. There's some athletes I've taken care of who have been very vocal who said, like, I'm not ready to go back because I'm worried that I it's not safe. That's, an, that's a really tough paradigm because um, I don't know if that – does that – fall into the bucket of mental health or is that a category in and of itself? Where, where do you put it and how do you manage it? And what do athletes have to prepare themselves for these types of pressures? Because this probably is more common than we know. Right. I think there's, like you were saying, there's what people don't also understand when people say I have anxiety, there's a difference between performance anxiety and falling under clinical anxiety, diagnosable. It comes through, you know, the DSM-5 that we reference in the medical world. 
um, with Simone, to be honest, I've gone around this in my head on terms of getting lost in the air. Is that a mental health issue? Um, I'm sure, you know, we looked at it and read, she said, you know, anxiety was a big thing of it. And I'm sure being, having the pressure of being the goat, having the pressure of, um, the American pressure, the world pressure. I mean, she's still, as she's seen as the grandma of the team, she's still relatively young and she has the world on her shoulders. Um, but also being a former gymnast and a diver, I've gotten lost in the air. And I've listened to some of the things my colleagues say for the need for us to be in the room. Um, and I agree after someone gets lost in the air, I don't think you can predict when someone's going to get lost in the air. I mean, there are some things and I, um, you know, what did the anxiety trigger that? Did the, you know, you could argue that all the time with all these things. And I'm sure someone would say, yes, that's, that's the direct link. But you also see people who have anxiety and they don't get lost in the air. So, so are, are you implying that it's a potentially an unreal, it's, it's part of the business that you might or could get lost. And if that happens, you might or could get injured or that because I have anxiety, I am more likely to get lost and potentially get injured. And therefore I'm going to take myself out. I know we're, I don't want to be subject to interpretation. That's not the game I'm trying to play here. But I, I think there's what you're saying is there, there's always an opportunity to get lost. That's the nature of the sport. But what is it about the anxiety level right now that is any different than any other time? Because that was always a risk in the sport you're doing. But is it an overwhelming, maybe even we can't judge realistic or unrealistic or rational or irrational, but is it the fact that the the fear of this is so certain that this athlete or any athlete says, I just don't want to put myself in that position? I mean, how do you inter- – I guess it's a chicken or the egg phenomenon. I think, I think so. That's why I've kind of gone back and forth in my own mind on it. You know, um, did the anxiety that she had for, you know, performing at the Olympics, I don't know. She, she's clearly a very mentally tough human being. And, um, she, if you watched her first ball getting, she's totally lost in the air. Um, your anxiety is going to spike after that. It's a, it's a terrifying experience. You know, I was trying to think of different experiences I had and I, you know, there's one where I can think of, like, I know where that came from. It was finals at UCLA. I hadn't slept. I had exams and I got lost in the air and and I just started crying. And my coach looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, he's like, you're done. But that's that I could identify other times in gymnastics and different things. And it's not something that gets fixed overnight. Um, you know, I was stopping in the middle of the air in gymnastics, and that's not something that can be processed in a two-week time frame. It takes a really long time going back to the basics for some. I talked to my friend. She got lost in the air, and she, you know, um, was able to turn it around. Um, Matt Scoggin, who was a diver in Barcelona, um, he slipped out of a dive, and and that – it. Um, I believe he had a collapsed lung after that. Like there's, there's so much just risk involved. And then if you, when you're in diving or you spot in the air, you always know where you are. Like this isn't, there is a science to it. You know, whether you see sky floor or sky pool or whatever it is, you 
and you have a feeling. You always know where you are. So when you don't, um, it's a really unsettling experience. What, what would you do as a therapist if, if you had a, a patient like Simone or others who had rational, it's not for us to judge rational or irrational. They have a fear to them that is rational that's yes. impairing their ability to perform. Mm-hmm. What is the strategy uh, to help them get through that? I think a lot of it is going back to the basics and you start rebuilding your confidence in that you do know how to do, typically you know how to do whatever skill it is. Um, I think part of it is you see a lot of kids, you know, a lot of kids quit because they get lost in the air. Um, and either they don't know how to process it, their you know, parents don't have patience, their coaches don't have the patience, you know, if it doesn't turn around, because you could get lost in the air on a trick she's been doing for a really long time, you know, or something you've done since you, people will say, well, you've been doing this since you were 10. What's the problem? T- tell me about why are we hearing and seeing so much about mental illness now? And is it, is it, is sports a unique platform or is it just a very visible platform? And now people are comfortable coming forward and, 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 and laying it out there for us to see as you know, to, for the public to consume mm-hmm. um, at this point. Is there something unique about sports or just it's the proper visible platform that we can now see here and talk about? I listed, you know, six to eight athletes and there's probably many more. Many um, more. Is there something very unique about sports, do you think, or we're just seeing it because it's so visible? Um, I don't know if it's super unique. I mean, I was thinking back, people think it's this new thing and I was looking I'm thinking, you know, Amanda Beard talked about, if you remember the swimmer who walked around with the teddy bear and, um, you know, and then kept going. And she talked about her struggles with mental health issues. Um, there's, there's been different people over time. I think with social media and the speed of information we're getting, do, are hearing more. It is great that some of these athletes like Simone, Naomi, Michael felt Kevin Love are coming out and talking about it, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't been there for a really long time. Um, and it doesn't mean that um, they don't have people still not speaking out. There is still a strong stigma, and that goes for our society as well as in sports. Tell um, me, tell me a little bit about uh, some of the other things. You know, we hear a lot about depression, um, mm-hmm. but I know we're also dealing, for example, with eating disorders in, in some of our elite athletes. Um, have you had, uh, the, you know, the opportunity to work with some of these athletes, and what kind of successes have you had? Yeah, and I, I have, and I actually texted the, this athlete this morning. Um, so I could tell a little bit more about her story. But Jesse Diggins, who was um, one of the cross-country skiers who won gold with Keegan Randall in um, Pyeongchang and is getting ready for her third Olympics coming this winter um, in Beijing, we have worked together since before Sochi. Um, and when she was first brought onto the team, there were concerns of her having an eating disorder she had gone to an inpatient facility that um, most people didn't know about. It wasn't until quite a long time. Um, she was actually in the ESPN body issue, and that's when she actually decided to 
communicate and talk about a reading disorder. So it's also a matter of not that they've, not that they overcome it. You always deal with eating disorders. It's a, it's an ongoing problem. She knows how to manage it better now. Um, and she's open to talking about it. You know, if you, she wrote a book, um, after that came out around, uh, I don't know, but it talks about her struggles and different things. And she's, I think it's helped her and helped her platform because cross country skiing, there's a lot of, I'll be faster if I'm thinner. Uh, you know, the, and then on the other extreme, you've got uh, the situation with Olivia Podmore. And I was reading an yes. article in ESPN, you know, uh, a friend of hers who was in the Olympics has had been around her within the last 72 hours prior to her death. Mm-hmm. And um, the hardest part about uh, suicide is the fact that so many people close to that individual just don't know and have no signs. Mm-hmm. And and I think um, you know suicide is is obviously not rational. And the individual who's in that position is not contemplating is this rational or irrational, or even thinking about the effects of other on, on other individuals. It's it's that devastating and that deep, and 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 the the the, the power of it is so incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. But then what's left behind are individuals who are close to that person who effectively have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, in your capacity. You know, for people who work around high-level athletes, or, or just people in general, is there are there soft signs? Are there is there anything that you know people can be sensitive to or aware of that they might or could heighten their sensitivity so that potentially a different outcome is is achieved for people who are around them that are just you know mm-hmm. it's a cult and they just don't know. Yeah, and I think that's a you know we it. It's important to know the signs and train people for the signs, but also knowing like also trained professionals sometimes can miss some of the signs as well. Sure. Um, sure. When I went to the NFL, there had been um, a few back to back suicides, you know, with Junior Seo and a couple around that time frame. And I remember talking to, um, someone in football ops and talking about someone can be in treatment and still make that choice. Um, and so, cause people think like, well, that's going to fix it. Um, and unfortunately I've had the experience of working at the ski team when speedy Jarrett Peterson committed suicide, um, and having to work with the national team and, and our staff, and our town of Park City, you know, it's a small town. I knew him long before I ever had this degree, you know, just from being in a small town. Um, and that really impacted the com- community as a whole, the skiing community. It, I mean, it go, it's a, like a ripple effect. Um, and I thought back on that. I was really kind of on myself. What did I miss? What did I, he was no longer part of the national team at that point, but I did, I actually had just seen him. Um, one of the things I look for now that I learned from that experience was I, and a lot of athletes will joke that I stalk their social media, but I also, it kind of gives me for ones I know really well, it gives me insight into how they're posting but then you also have to know some of the elite level athletes, they don't do their own posts. So you have to be, you have to know what they're putting up. But, um, 
he had shut down. Um, I believe it was his Facebook. I can't remember now. And I've, and I had an athlete do that again after, and I kind of knew and jumped on it right away. So for, you know, we've spent a lot of time obviously referencing the elite athletes, um, mm-hmm. as somebody who, you know, has played at a high level, but would never consider myself an elite athlete. You know, I played baseball. I've mm-hmm. had things like, you know, the yips where I'm on the mound and suddenly in the third inning, I, I cannot throw a strike. And I, like you said, I've been mm-hmm. playing the game since I was little, but I cannot locate the strike zone. Uh, Rick Ankiel is a very good example of this, who played for the Cardinals, who could no longer throw strikes and could not figure it out. He was demoted to the minors. He came back up and eventually made it back to the majors for a few successful years as an outfielder, but he never pitched again. So the question here is, do you think that the visibility of the elite athletes who are addressing this more publicly and the heightened level of visibility will maybe encourage athletes at, you know, maybe the middle or lower levels who could still be struggling with these types of issues, but aren't Mm -hmm. at the elite level. So maybe they feel like they don't get the attention or they don't have the resources. Um, And maybe there'll be some hopeful trickle down to address that because there's a wider population of those average athletes on teams at lower levels than there is that top tier of athletes. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest, of what I've seen. You know, I've seen, you know, people... DM some of these high level athletes, you know, thank you. I thank you for saying that I learned so much, or I've been struggling too. whether they're athletes or not, you know, they identify with their story. Um, but I was also talking to a young cross country skier a couple weeks ago who struggles with an eating disorder and was able to totally differentiate herself from Jesse because she struggled with a different type of eating disorder than she did and was like, well, that's not applicable. So I think it, you also have to be aware of, you know, when they're struggling, that's part of it. They can talk themselves out of, you know, um, or convince themselves I don't have a problem or different things. Or I think also, like you said, they don't have the resources, um, Sometimes they do have the resources. And like I said, our society doesn't still ask for help. Um, And then when they do right now, like during COVID, you know, you send someone to try to get in somewhere and they're like, well, I can't get in for three months. Let me, yeah, that's a, that's a good segue. Tell me about, (laughs) you know, I, I, you know, you're an incredible resource and I have to imagine a lot of your practice is virtual now. Is that fair to say? Yes. What yeah. what percentage are you virtual versus face to face? I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, I'd probably say like, well, during COVID, a hundred percent. The difference was I was a lot very virtual prior to this because um, yeah. athletes work in Europe and travel, and um, they're not all here in Park City. During the summer, more people are here. So, but I would still say it was only like five percent that I see in person. Um, and even some are down the street, you know, with the younger kids, well, my mom can't get me there or, and right. I live in a small town. It's not like people are like, well, it's an hour drive or, you know, so we do you think that you can be as effective, um, non face to face doing it virtually. I mean, you know, we're doing our podcast now. I see your, you know, your yeah. office and your, you know, your, your, your facial, uh, <laughs> you know, emotional, uh, right. interjection and so forth. So. I think you can do it as effectively. Uh, do you feel that, you know, historically you go back to the way you used to practice, the way you practice now, you can be as effective in, in a virtual format? 
I would love to say yes. In many circumstances, yes. You know, a lot of the athletes I work with, I've have been with for years. So I, I know the things. However, this summer, I met a young kid. He's 14. He's a ski ra- skier, free, uh, freestyle skier. Mm-hmm. I had never met him in person. And um, we had been practicing belly breathing. Mm-hmm. I, when he said, I said, is your belly moving? Mm-hmm. He said, yes. I couldn't mm-hmm. see his belly. Yeah. And when I met him, his belly was going in. It uh, was moving. And I was direction. like, oh, <laughs> you know, like that was a fail on my part. Yeah. Um, so I think in many cases you can. I do think this summer with some of the young athletes that I had not had the chance to meet, Um, some of them live here in town and we were able to meet face to face, you know, once a week this summer, it does, it just makes a difference. Just the comfort level, um, you know, and it's nice. I do it outside the office. We might go for a hike. We might go, you know, it's not like your typical 50 minutes on the couch. Um, so, but you have to do what we can with what we have. I think you can be effective, but we are still missing you know, some of that just human nature of sure. being around people. Sure. Yeah. The human bond. There's a lot yeah. of, there, there's a, there's a lot of intangibles. Well, mm-hmm. I hope that, uh, this winter we have a chance to, uh, t- uh tour ski and, or do some downhill together, take some Absolutely. turns. Uh, I was <laughs> very fortunate to meet you last winter and we, we had some time together. And, um, would you mind sharing, uh, either your social media channels or other that people could reach out to you, whether it's your website or other, uh, cause I'm sure a lot of our listeners, and this is a national podcast, well, international in theory, uh, you're, I consider you, uh, a, a very high level expert, extremely knowledgeable, very well trained and competent. And, um, anyone would be very lucky if they had a need for your services to, to be able to interact with you. What's the best way to reach you? Um, it's funny you asked my, my, um, website is under development right now, but it's <laughs> pyramidperformance.net. Okay. Um, but someone can reach out to me via email and it's Lauren Loberg one at gmail.com. L a u r l a u r e n dot Loberg. L-O-B- no dot. Okay. L a u r e n l o b e r g one one at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter and all those different platforms. All right. We'll make sure people follow you. Thank right. you for taking the time, and uh, I, I wish you well, and I look forward to seeing you in the ski season. Absolutely. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please find us on social media, including Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit us at sportsmedicineweekly.com. Remember, all net proceeds go to support research at Rush University Medical Center and the Department of Orthopedics. The Sports Medicine Weekly podcast is sponsored by Vericell. Vericell develops, manufactures, and markets autologous cell-based therapies for patients with serious diseases and conditions. For more information about their products, visit www.vcell.com. That's V-C-E-L.com. Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. To be your best, you start with best practices. Eat better, grow stronger, reach higher. At Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, their work is what best practices are built upon. They're a team of leading physicians with the highest level of experience and training, prolific researchers delivering pioneering breakthroughs orthopedic experts that other orthopedic specialists and their patients come to when they need individualized care. Get it done right the first time at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. 
visit rushortho.com slash the best to learn more. <laughs>